Welcome to Encounter, everybody. Uh, my name's Mike, as I said, one of the pastors here. And, um, and tonight we're continuing our At The Movies series. So we've been just doing over summer, just going through a few movies as a sort of, I was going to say a light way. It was meant to be light, but I got a bit more intense than I intended last week. So I have to try and stay light this way. Thanks, guys. Um, as just a light way of getting into the year and asking the question, what are some of the key messages coming out in our culture? What, what is the film industry putting into our lives that we need to consider and be praying through and thinking, okay, where is this reflecting Jesus Christ and where is it against Jesus Christ? What are the messages our culture is giving us? And it's a really interesting thing to do, okay? So we've been doing it the last few weeks. We started off, Jen, my wife, preached a cracker on A Star is Born about how fame affects us, right? And about how our longing to be known and loved really starts to play on our minds and affects how we worship and who we are. And last week I talked about the Fantastic Beast series, the second movie, The Crimes of Grindelwald, and, and what is truth and how we find out what the truth of Jesus is in a world where truth becomes even more murky, even greyer, day by day. And tonight, Black Panther. Yeah. A bit of a crowd pleaser. How many people have seen Black Panther? Just out of curiosity. Quite a lot of people. Okay. Okay. Um, let me pray. And then we'll get into talking about Black Panther. Okay. So uh, I, I have three kids, good kids. One of the things you learn when you have three... <laughs> I like how I had to say good kids as if I was justifying it to myself. Half of you don't even know them. You're like, yeah, I'm sure they're fine. I'm like, no, no, they're good. They're good. I'm talking to myself a little. Anyway. They're good kids. And, uh, and the thing you find out when you have kids, especially when you have more than one, I grew up an only child, different story. But when you, we have our own problems. When you have more than one kid, when you have more than one kid, you find out pretty quickly, like there's this kind of battle for dominance that happens. It is just open warfare amongst children. So it's happening all the time. So sometimes it's, you know, the obvious stuff. They're fighting like, I want this, I want that. Okay, you know, that's really obvious. Sometimes it's psychological. You know, they'll just, they'll just break each other down, especially if you've got daughters. I've got a daughter. And she's great at just like you know, breaking down her brothers piece by piece until they're shattered messes on the ground. She's like, what? I didn't do anything. I didn't start any fights. Technically, she didn't. She's very good. She's very good. Um, and sometimes it's just like guerrilla warfare, you know, especially my youngest, Noah, is this tiny, tiny little kid. Often he'll just run in and like, boom, whack his brother over the head and then bolt off again. And his brother, who's much, much bigger, but also a gentle-hearted sort of fellow, will just get upset and cry when uh, you're kind of thinking, oh, I'm just glad you're not running after him because that would end badly. But the reason I tell you all of this is not to justify again how good my children are, you know, but I might need to after that. It, but it's to talk to you about the, this idea about control and kingdom. Now, if you've ever seen three kids play together, in fact, two kids play together, every time one of them's like, let's play this. And if there's three kids, you can bet your life one of them's like, cool. And another one's like, no, let's play this. And it's like, oh, great. Now you've got this little power struggle between two people wanting to play different games. And it's this tiny microcosm of what goes on in our hearts and what goes on in the world around us all the time. And that's this. We all want to be king. We all want to be king. We all want to be queen. We all want to be in control of our own lives or the situations around us. And one of the things you hear in Black Panther is a message about kings and kingdoms. We're going to explore that a little bit tonight using that text that we were hearing earlier. So first of all, Black Panther, 
Huge hit in 2018. Huge, huge hit. Fourth in the Australian box office. I was stunned to find that out. Three movies beat it. It wasn't even the top Marvel movie. So Avengers Infinity War was ahead by miles. And then um, Bohemian Rhapsody and The Incredibles that movie. Both beat it. Who knew? I would have thought Black Panther was first, but there you go. Uh, still managed to take in around 35 million Australian dollars just here alone. So it's doing fine. Don't shed any tears for Marvel. Uh, so a quick synopsis if you haven't seen it. I'll read this verbatim. After the death of his father, T'Challa returns home to the African nation of Wakanda to take his rightful place as king. When a powerful enemy suddenly appears, T'Challa's medal as king and his Black Panther gets tested when he's drawn into a conflict that puts the fate of Wakanda and the entire world at risk. Faced with treachery and danger, the young king must rally his allies and release the full power of Black Panther to defeat his foes and secure the safety of his people. Now, I am extremely white, so I'm just going to take a guess at pronunciation of everything and go with it, because there's, ju there's just no win for me. Like, either I try too hard and it's like, oh, you have, are you trying to be African-American here? Like, no, there's no win. I'm just going to take a guess and keep going. So it's just T'Challa. I don't know if it's right. It's fine. I'm going with it. Now, if you haven't seen Black Panther, you should see Black Panther. I watched it again this week. I watched it for the second time. And I'll, I'll just, for the sake of consistency, shout out our intern, Alicia, for the third week in a row, uh, one of our resident movie buffs, and particularly a Marvel... Is obsessive too strong in the word or not strong enough? I'm not sure. But she really likes Marvel. So she, she, you know, I said, oh, yeah, you've probably got Black Panther, right? And she's like, yeah, I've watched it eight times. Like, That's a lot for a movie that came out last year. But, okay, four. <laughs> We exaggerate. It's, yeah. I've got the microphone here. <laughs> if you heard that on the podcast, she said 16. <laughs> and, uh, and so I, I took it and watched it again. And on first watch, I went to the cinema like everybody else, watched it. Good film. I walked out of it, having heard all the hype, going, oh, yeah, it's a Marvel movie. That was, that was kind of my response. Like, it's a Marvel movie. It's great that it's got an all-minority cast. Like, that's... Fantastic, but it's a Marvel movie. But I watched it again last week. And the more I watch it and the more I think about it, actually the more I am impressed by the kind of film it is. Not because of what happens in the movie, but of everything, all the undercurrents, all the culture that is being put into the movie, all the projected culture that's coming out of it. We cannot even begin to scratch the surface of a lot of the stuff that's happening around African culture, African-American culture, 21st century America. There's too much stuff happening. So we're going to pick a lane and run with it here. I don't want you to go see Black Panther because it's an incredible movie. It is not one of the five best movies of the year, in my opinion. And I'm a movie nerd who likes to think about these things. You should go see it because it's significant. It's an important movie culturally. It's going to become more important as the years go by. I actually think we might look back at Black Panther and say this started a change in movie making. It might be the sort of film that goes from, okay, instead of every now and then we have a minority in the lead, frequently we have them in the lead. And it doesn't matter what ethnicity you, go, you come from, you go and see that at the cinema. Now, until Black Panther, this was pretty rare. And it's getting more and more prevalent, and that's a good thing. But I'm just saying, it's a very important movie. It's significant because it's empowering. Not because it's good, but because it's empowering. It needed to be made. Like I said, I think it's going to be a cultural turning point. It creates a positive identity for young black people, particularly African-Americans, particularly young African-American men. So even though it's only a superhero movie, it does have cultural significance. But that's not why you're here. So the film is centred around this nation of Wakanda, which is this 
fictional African nation tucked somewhere or other. I was reading up on the geography and it was so intertwined with other fake comic book countries that I just gave up. It's in Africa. Uh, It's a a fictional African nation. It's a country that's posing as a third world nation, but in actuality, it's the world's most technologically advanced country. And because of those two things, right, that it's got a fake identity, but it could be the most powerful, there is this power struggle over who gets to rule Wakanda. And we see three different kings in this film, and they rule Wakanda in three different ways. So we're just going to explore that briefly, and then we're going to start digging into the kingdom of God and what that means for us today. So three kings. The first is T'Chaka. T'Chaka is the father of of the main character, the main Black Panther character. T'Chaka was the previous king. He died in an earlier Marvel film. I don't remember which one, an Avengers probably, but still lives on in the film as a key character because who he was shapes who the country is, shapes who the rest of the people are today. Now, T'Chaka is a reminder of Wakanda's recent history. And he's an example of a particular kind of king. It's a particular kind of king who refuses to change. T'Chaka is a king who puts up borders and says, we've been doing just fine, thanks. Wakanda's a great country. I don't see what the big deal is. Let's just keep on keeping on. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Except, as his own daughter says, just because something works doesn't mean it can't be improved. And actually, if you've plateaued as an organisation... You're going down. The time to grow, the time to change is when you're already growing. That's why if you've been going through a hard time, but you feel like God's stretching you, and you're like, oh God, it feels like different things are being heaped on me. That's a good thing. God is saying, I believe in your potential. I'm growing you more. So don't be worried about that. It's just a little side note. That's the time to grow. But the other thing is this king has covered up some stuff that's happened in his life and in the history of Wakanda in order to keep things the same. He's actually made some unethical decisions in order to cover it up. T'Chaka would rather hide reality than change his mind. So that's one kind of king. Here's the second. The second king is Eric Stevens, a.k.a. Killmonger. Let's face it, it's a cooler name than Eric. No offence to the Erics in the room. Uh, Killmonger is marked by his desire to force change, okay? So if T'Chaka doesn't want change, Killmonger wants to force change. And for Killmonger, under his rule, Wakanda is this, he would call it liberating, but it's a dictatorship. It's about violence. It's marked by pain and violence. He doesn't care about tradition. He doesn't care about history. He doesn't care about you or me or other people. He just wants revenge. He wants blood. He has had pain in his life and he wants to use the pain in his past to force the world to experience that same kind of pain. Why shouldn't he? There's this really interesting line where he says that some will never set on the Wakandan Empire, which is a, a phrase that the British used to use. So it's kind of like this idea of black colonialism instead of white colonialism. It's really, really nuanced. This is the stuff you watch it again and you pick up on. It's really powerful. Killmonger would rather see the war, war rip the world apart than deal with his own past. So one refuses to change. The second one is forcing people to change through violent methods. The third one's T'Challa. Now, he's the Black Panther. He's sort of the main character. The, the easy way out would be to say, he's the good king. And I guess he is, kind of. But the thing about T'Challa is what he really represents is somebody who's torn between two worlds. He's got on one side, he's got all this history, this culture that he's been raised in and steeped in that said, this is what it means to be Wakanda. Then he's got this young generation, particularly this young generation of women around him, 
who are saying, why don't we be more generous? Why don't we lower the borders? Then he's got this young generation of men on the other side of him going, Wakanda is powerful. Why don't we listen to Killmonger? Why don't we actually act on that power and do something about it? And for most of the movie, you got this character who doesn't seem to know what to do. He is torn between the old and two kinds of new, and he kind of freezes, which is why it's doubly ironic that there's this line in the movie where somebody says, don't freeze, and he says, I never freeze, but he spends the entire movie frozen between his choices. He doesn't know what to do. He's misguided. He's undirected. He's caught between the past and the future. We don't know whether he wants to change because he doesn't know. And as we see these three different kings and we either see their past mistakes or we see what they're doing right now, we start to identify with them because that's what good media does. It asks you to identify with a character, with a hero, with a villain who's got a good point, with an older character. It says, which king are you? And that's what we've got to ask ourselves. Which king am I? Am I the one who doesn't want any change at all? Am I the one who does want change, but I'm forcing it through on my own terms? Or am I the one that actually doesn't know what to do because I feel torn between two worlds? I wonder if any of that resonates with where you are tonight. Let's just jump into Scripture. 1 Samuel chapter 8 is what we're looking at tonight. If you've got your Bibles, really encourage you to open and read with me because there's nothing that is going to grow you more than your own reading of Scripture, far more so than uh, anything I could say. So 1 Samuel chapter 8, let's have a look. Now, 1 Samuel is one of the history books. There's uh, six books in a row in the Bible that just unpack the history of the kings of Israel. Seven or eight, I guess, if you start counting Ruth and Judges. But um, particularly the books of Samuel and Kings and Chronicles start to unpack the history of Israel. And in 1 Samuel 8, we see the kingdom in a transitional period. Israel was ruled for a long time by judges. Those are people that followed God and were raised up as leaders to guide the people of Israel. But they weren't rulers, they were leaders. There is a distinction. They weren't the people who got to say, do this, and everyone did it necessarily. It wasn't like being a king. And so we get to this passage in time, and Samuel is getting old, and he is one of the great prophets they have ever had Plucked out of obscurity, the hand of God is upon him from day one. He is faithful. He comes from a heritage of faith. And so he sows that again and he has these two sons. And you can tell that his desperate prayer is, I want my sons to lead like I did, to follow the word of God and press on. But the people come to him and they basically say, your sons are idiots. We are not following your sons and we want a king. And there's this really interesting verse, chapter 8. Verse 6, when they said, give us a king to judge us, Samuel was, was angry. He wasn't angry at them for saying his sons were idiots. Now, I would be. Please don't call my sons idiots. They're lovely, like I've said repeatedly tonight already. They're great kids. But Samuel didn't care. He was like, I'm not worried about that. What I'm worried about is why do you want a king? I can live without my sons being in charge. So he gets upset and he goes and prays. And he says, God, what do I do? And the Lord does something he will do to you and to me if we are foolish enough to ask for it. He gives them the desires of their heart. He says, Samuel, just give them what they want. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. All right. That seems interesting because it just sounds like they're rejecting bad leadership, right? But if you go on, 
there are some really interesting things. The first part upsets Samuel, the part about not wanting a king, because Israel already has a king. Israel has God, the Almighty, Jehovah, Yahweh, however you want to pronounce that. There is a king in Israel and it's their God. And it's the idea that God actually rules and reigns. They don't need a king to come in and tell them what to do. And then the eight verses that I just left out to make the reading shorter for you all, in that you just hear a list of things that Samuel was like, all right, Israel, here's what the king's going to do, X, Y, Z, and he just goes on for a while. Here is a whole bunch of bad stuff the king's going to do. Are you sure you want a king? And the people tragically say this in verse 19. They say, we want a king over us, then we'll be like all the other nations. Wow. The one nation in the world that has access, straight access to God the Father, where God says, you are my chosen people. I will use you to demonstrate my love and mercy and power to the world. They said, it's too hard. Can we make somebody do it for us? We want a king. We want to be like everybody else. And then even worse, we will be a king. And then we will, let me find my place, we'll be like all the other nations. Our king will judge us, go out before us and fight our battles. This is why God says, Samuel, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me because that's what God does. He judges us. He goes out before us and fights our battles. And because he fights our battles for us, that's what makes the judgment palatable for us. He does both of those things, love and truth together in God. And the Israelites said, make us like everybody else. So many Christians I see today are like that. It's the temptation of my heart all the time to just go, just make me like everybody else. I just want to do a renovation on my house and have a barbecue and have an easy life. But it's not the life that God calls us to. And I don't believe it's the extraordinary life that he wants for you. We believe that this year, God is calling Encounter Church to a year of more. And that's not to say more money or or more blessing, but sure, yeah, those would be great. What we believe it's more of, more than anything else, is more of the presence of God. More of God in our lives, more direction, more wisdom, more personal encounters with the presence of God. And if you're here tonight and you're hungry for that encounter, my belief is if you reach out, God will reach back. He is here. He is longing to reach out to you. I don't know whether you feel thirsty, whether you feel dry, but the presence of God is here and longing to reach out to you, longing to. And so we get this question. We go back to this. Which kind of king am I? But as we read through this, as we read through the principles about this, we go, hang on, I'm asking the wrong question. The question's not which kind of king am I, the question of whose kingdom am I building? Whose kingdom am I building? Am I building my kingdom or God's kingdom? Because the one thing that brings all these kings and makes them exactly the same is it's their way or the highway. Whether they want that to do that by peace, by liberty, by violence, by defence, it doesn't matter. They're the king, they're in charge. And that's the thing about having a king. The king's in charge. So what do we do? with the idea that maybe we do have a king and they are in charge, but it's not you and it's not me. How do we deal with that? Because God is building a kingdom. And what we learn throughout Scripture from the beginning of the Old Testament all the way through to the end of the New is that God is building something called the kingdom of God. 
And God, as God always does, took the broken pieces of Israel and made it into something beautiful. Just the way that he makes something beautiful out of the broken pieces of your life and mine. In fact, God took the broken pieces of this kingdom and the Israelites said, God, you promised us something. When you gave us this monarchy, you promised to King David, the greatest king we ever had. You said his line would always be on the throne. Where's our king? And God just smiles. And this is, in fact, there's this moment right at the end of the film where somebody asks the Black Panther a question and the end of the film is just him smirking. I kind of feel like that's what God does. When, when everyone's reaching out going, God, what's happened to the king? And God's like, ah, wait, just wait. Because God takes the broken pieces of Israel and restores them through Jesus. This is what happens when the true king comes. He turns all our understanding of what it means to be a king, all our understandings of a kingdom up on its head. Because when Samuel is talking to the Israelites and he says, this is what the king will do. He says, he's going to take your sons and put them to use in his chariots. He's going to appoint them as commanders or he's going to make them to plough his ground and reap his harvest to make weapons of war. But when Christ comes, he comes to heal the sick to set the blind people seeing again, to set the captives free, to make the broken whole. And he does it not by taking people and saying, go be my warriors and lay yourself down for the king. But the king goes and lays himself down for the warriors. This is the kingdom of God. And this is why the kingdom of heaven is worth living for and dying for, friends. It's because there is a king on the throne. And his name is Jesus. But his kingdom is not marked by war. It's not marked by his own sense of justice. It's not marked by what he wants, but it's marked by grace and love and mercy and wholeness. And all the brokenness in our lives is made new in the kingdom of God. Everything you could desire and more in God's kingdom. That's the kind of God we're serving. That's the kind of king who rules and reigns over us. The question was never, what kind of God am I? You shouldn't be any kind of God. The question is, whose kingdom am I building? But if you go all the way back to the start of Scripture, to Adam and Eve, to chapter 3 in Genesis, you run into this problem, you run into this idea called original sin. And in original sin, I don't know why, but for some reason it's taken on this connotation of sex in our culture. It has nothing to do with that. Actually, what it has to do with is rebellion and pride. Because at the heart of every human being's relationship with God, and no matter how long you've walked with Jesus, this is true for you, is this rebellious nature inside of us. Where God says, hey, I have this path for you. And we say, I want that and I want it now. And I'm just going to take it. This is the rebellion at the heart of all our humanity. This is why... Films like Black Panther resonate so strongly because there's this clutching at a kingdom that we're building. And I actually think what's really interesting about Black Panther is there's all these great characters, all these strong characters. I love Shuri. She's, she's the most, you know, most fun character in the movie, the wise-talking sister. You know? I love Nakia. She, she's this, this sort of heart of the movie, this, this heart for justice and the poor. And there's a lot of Christ in her. But I actually think the hero of the movie is Akoya. Let me, let me spell this out. Akoya is, is the general of the armies, and she's basically the, the captain of the, Black, the, the King's Guard. King and Black Panther are the same. It gets confusing. She's the captain of the King's Guard. And she goes through these crises in the movies. And every time you see her wrestling with these big questions. And the first question is when she's helping people escape 
And she's helping them escape because she's basically going, you are good people. I'm not going to kill you. I'm going to let you escape. Go, go. And they're like, yeah, but you're coming with us, right? And she stops and she's stunned. She says, no, I, I serve the king. And they're like, yeah, but the king's bad. She's like, but I serve the king. That's what I do. And so the first thing you hear from her is, I'm not about running away from what I'm, my responsibilities are. I serve the king and I'm going to do it. And then as she goes on a little more, she begins to realise that the king she's serving is actually a false king. It's fake. She set herself up for failure because instead of, of looking at the kingdom that's being built, she's got her eyes on the wrong king because they've got a crown on their head. She said, oh, that must be the real king. But in reality, the true king's coming back again. And Akoya sees this. She sees the corruption and brokenness. And she says, you're not the true king. I'm going to follow the true king. But she never betrays this ideal that her number one job is to be loyal to the throne. And for us here tonight, I don't know your story. I don't know whether you've been following Jesus for a long time or if you just got dragged here because someone was like, hey, we're going to watch Black Panther for two minutes and then hear a sermon. Uh, you know. And you know, you can watch it afterwards. It's a good move. Good movie. But I've got to tell you, if you're trying to build a kingdom on your own ideas, on your own dreams, it's going to fall down. If, you're, if, you're, if you've been following the wrong king, if you've been following the wrong God, and usually for us in Australia, frankly, that means we follow ourselves. I really like, I just see renovations. I'm, I'm always talking about renovations in this idea. I think we renovate our homes because then we don't get distracted. Oh, sorry, we're constantly distracted that way. Because you can't stop renovating, right? You keep renovating and renovating and renovating and eventually you die. You just get back to the start again and go, oh, well, that's old now, let's start again. There's nothing inherently wrong with renovating, but I think we renovate our homes so we don't have to renovate our hearts. So that we don't actually have to come face to face with Jesus and say, God, what is it that you want to do in my life that is significant, that'll make a difference in the world? And we're now in this interesting place in human history where the generation X is down. So basically 50 and under are all desperate to do something significant with their lives. Whereas the generations before that had gone through such hardship that they're like, we need to set up something that will last. And it's a totally understandable way of doing it. But every generation gets corrupted in their own ways. And, and those generations ended up getting caught on this idea of now we have more stuff. Not all of them, obviously. But for the rest of us, Gen X and under, we started to get discontent. Generation X, in fact, is known for being this, like, whatever generation, this, you know, I don't care generation, the MTV generation, because there was this discontent in them that they looked around, they said, there's got to be more than this. It can't just be about acquiring more stuff. It can't just be about buying a holiday house. It can't just be about getting a better job, getting a better looking partner, feeling better about ourselves, about, you know, financial goals, relationship goals, whatever. There's got to be more to life than this. And now we get through and, and the millennial generation and the generations coming after us saying, even more than that, if we don't make a significant difference in our life, what's the point? I hope that resonates with some of you guys because you have so much potential, so much potential in your life. And God has created in each and every one of you the capacity to make extraordinary change in this world. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. But the way we make change 
is not by going, I'm going to rule the world or I'm going to create a pathway and everyone else will follow. It's actually in this really counterintuitive way of looking up to the true King and getting down on our knees and going, King, I'm here. Tell me how I can serve you. See, when we do that, we align the dreams of our heart with the dream of God's heart. We actually say, your dreams are bigger and wider and wiser than we could imagine. And it's not that our dreams are worthless. It's that we want to bring them to you like a precious gem being refined to cut away all the impurities to say, is this actually from your heart, God? Is this a dream that you want to change the world? Because don't doubt it, God wants you to change the world. But He needs you to get right with Him first. For some of you here tonight, you're not a Christian. And this has been jarring and confusing, but also something is just happening in your spirit. Maybe you grew up in a Christian home and and you're just working this out for yourself now. Or maybe you're just actually out of nowhere. The Spirit of God is doing something in your life. There is no better time to give your life to Jesus and say, I want to follow the true King, the one whose life was sacrifice and whose rule is marked by mercy and love and justice. I want to give my life to that King and stop trying to be the King of my own life. That's you tonight while everyone's eyes are shut and every head is bowed. I'm going to count to three and then I want to give you an opportunity to slip your hand up to say yes to Jesus because He is closer than you know and it's easier than you think. One, two, three. If that's you, just slip your hand up. If you want to accept Jesus as Lord tonight for the first time, I want to pray for you. Whether you're here or whether you're listening to this on the podcast, uh, my prayer is that the Spirit of God is ministering to you tonight. My prayer is that you have heard something from God, that you have come face to face with the living God, that you've had an encounter with Jesus that has transformed you. So you can open your eyes, by the way, if you haven't already. Uh, As you go out into this week, may you continue to come face to face with the true King, with Jesus, who is setting up a kingdom and He's asking you if you will work with Him, not as a slave, but as a brother and a sister, to build a kingdom of God, a kingdom of world changes that you're a part of. So have an incredible week.